3: Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.
1: As the number one audio company, iHeartMedia gives you access to all. Every audience, live conversations, trusted influencers, and the insights and data you need to grow. iHeartMedia is your access company. Go to iHeartResults.com for more. Go behind the wheel, under the hood, and beyond with Car Stuff from HowStuffWorks.com.
4: Hi, and welcome to the podcast. I'm Scott Benjamin. And
0: I'm Ben Bolin. Ben, we're back with part two of our Monte Carlo podcast. Yes, yes, the time has come, dot, 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 again.
4: (laughs) (laughs) Not a real cliffhanger
0: or anything like that, but I I believe when we left off, we were talking about um, pricing, right? Yeah, we were talking about the pricing of the first gen Monte Carlo, uh, compared to the base price and then the options added on, the ones that everybody added on, and how this compares to the other cars in the market at the time. Yeah, and then we even
4: brought in the 2010 Chevrolet Camaro, which is, uh, you know, the, the, the replacement for it in 2010. Yep. Um, so that, that, and how that translated into it. But you gotta remember that, you know, this is a personal luxury coupe back in 1970. It was the, and it became, it was the cheapest car in the second at the time and that's why it just sold like crazy I mean people loved the Monte Carlo loved it so much that it was even difficult to get a dealer discount mm-hmm. yeah it sold uh, it sold extremely well in 1970 1971 um, it, there was even like this long UAW strike that happened in the fall yep. of 1970 and you know production was cut down and and they still they still were selling cars like crazy. I mean, it, it didn't, you know, have any kind of impact on that at all. And well, I'm sure it had some, but it didn't have any impact on sales really mm-hmm. overall. But um, one thing, you know, we need to just take a moment here, and I want to mention something because I think people are going to get the wrong impression.
0: Are we going to do some myth busting? Just a little bit. And yeah. The
4: Monte Carlo was not a muscle car. Nope. And, and Chevy didn't say it was. Yeah, they, that's the thing. They never ever marketed Monte Carlo as a muscle car, which, um, I can understand, because we've talked about the strict rules that people adhere to for, um, you know, muscle car production, I guess, mm-hmm. and, you know, what, what people consider a muscle car. And some people are very, very, uh, uh, the purists, I guess, are very, very, very strict about what they call a muscle car. Down to what's years a, of certain you know, what's models. A, what's a pony car and what's a sports car mm-hmm. and what's not even considered in this whole thing. And, um, they get very, very, I don't want to say irate about it, but they get upset. (laughs) They get upset about it, you know, when you when you try to call a car that is not a muscle car. One, well, Chevrolet never. Proposed to do that. They never, uh, they never said that. You know, this is a the, the latest muscle car out of out of Detroit or anything. But you know, they had the Chevelle, they had the Malibu SS, and that was for that type of buyer. So they had other vehicles that fit that bill.
0: Right, and you could say that the SS four five four was more in that direction, in that muscle car direction. But Scott, they didn't sell very many of those at all. No, I
4: guess. And they had the GTO, which was, you know, that one sold quite a bit, but it wasn't. uh It was just a different car. Ben, I mean, it's a yeah. different buyer, different car, and and um they never said the Monte Carlo was anything like that but you know they did have this fantastic um SS 454 package which we just hinted at last time right and it was a big deal really i mean it was a it was a really strong strong engine mm-hmm. and i just want to make sure that i get this right exactly what what it was it was a it's a 427 engine i believe that was stroked to 454 mhm so it, you know they
0: upped it quite a bit in uh in in cubic inches yeah i've got the horsepower uh it's rated at 360 horsepower, Scott, and that's at 4800 RPM. Uh, it's got heavy suspension, heavy-duty suspension. It's got wider tires. Of course, it's got some badging so that people know it's got the rear leveling suspension. This um, this is a more performance. A uh, performance pointed car. How about that? Obviously, yeah. And
4: but you know the thing is that it didn't sell a lot of them. Now it had a uh, there was a uh, an RPO code for this one, and I'll have to I'll have to dig that one up as well. You know what that what that RPO code Ooh. was. Maybe I'll find it. Maybe I won't. But um, it was a special order vehicle, really. Right. And it was subtle. It was very, very subtle in the way that they disguised this thing. Now, the badging that you mentioned, it wasn't anything outrageous. It wasn't anything right. like that. You're, you're not going to be able to tell this is an SS from far away. You're going to mm-hmm. have to be up close. You're going to have to really know your vehicle makes and models to be able to pick it yeah. out. And they sold very, very few of them. In fact, from 1970 to 1971, which is the only time they offered the SS454 package in the uh, in the original
0: Gen 1 vehicles, they sold less than six thousand total, right? And that means that if you are lucky lucky enough to have one now, you should uh, you should hang on to it and take care of it. Yeah, I mean, but and the thing was, it was a heavy car. You know, it just wasn't.
4: Even though it was this performance package, and people thought you know that was really great. Um, people also realize that I could get much more vehicle if I order the Chevelle or if I order, uh, maybe that Malibu SS or if I go for the Pontiac GTO. Right. If I go for, you know, a different type of vehicle that is more performance oriented than, than this one that's kind of, they just, they put a bigger engine in a, in a personal luxury car, really.
0: Yeah. And that's, that's a really good way to say it because let's also point out just to dig a little deeper in that, that of that span from 1970, 1971, we said fewer than Mm 6,000. The majority of those sales were in 1970. So it seems like the market decided, hey, if I'm going to get something with more performance – why am I piddling around? Yeah, because you know? I think there were less than 2,000 of them sold in 1971.
4: It was yep. like just under that. It was like 1900 or something. Yes. So now what Monte Carlo did have going for it was that it looked and felt a lot more expensive than it was. now <laughs> right. it, was, it was like a, this aspirational car, I guess, because the, the owners probably wanted a Thunderbird because Ford Thunderbird was kind of the, the king of the roost there at that point, yep. just to coin a term, I guess. Mm-hmm. Um, but you, you really, if you couldn't afford um, you know, the Thunderbird, you couldn't afford even a Grand Prix, that you
0: maybe wanted. Well then maybe Monte Carlo was your car. Mm-hmm. I think that's a good point too. Let's so we're we're in 1971. So in 1971 there are some changes, but there aren't very many. It's very small. And then 1972 kind of the same thing, but 1973 Scott, we see the second generation of the Monte Carlo, right?
4: Yeah, and this is a uh, collaborative design effort. It's something that uh, you know a lot of different designers had their hands in the, uh, in the cookie jar here on this one because um, <laughs> it wasn't just one designer like the first gen was, you know, um, with uh, Terry Henline. Um, right. This is a lot of people coming together and saying, what we can do to, to what can we do to make this car even better?" And what they did was they made even a longer hood. They stretched out the hood even longer, so they they exaggerated some of the fender flares. It seems like they made a cartoon version of this car. Really, and, yeah. and I say that you know in a loving way, Ben. I like don't mean a caricature, I don't mean, yeah, caricature, and I don't mean like you know it's a bad thing. I, I think because I think the second generation cars are really pretty cool looking. Um, they made this long hood, these exaggerated fender flares, even more so than before. They had these, uh, you know, they called it Jaguar like. um uh, headlight blisters that extended into the hood and you can kind of understand what i mean by that i mean the the, the shape of the headlight trails off into the hood mm-hmm. um they had these opera windows at the back on the sail panels that um people either loved or hated those things they were uh, yeah. a fixed window but and it really didn't do anything for sight lines or anything no. like that but um the second gen cars ben these are the ones that i have a lot of uh, i have a lot of experience with these My i had two cousins that were um older than me in Indiana mm-hmm. and you know older than me like the, the kind of the, exactly the age where I would look up to you know they were oh, like okay. the, the cooler older kids right they were yeah. like 6 years older Five, than me 6 maybe. that's the sweet exactly. spot exactly brother sister and uh they owned uh, a couple of used Monte Carlos from the second generation at the same time so oh, when they're, cool. so when they were in high school their parents my aunt and uncle bought them Bought the the boy a uh, a black one all black Really, really slick looking. The yeah, second cool. gen one. And, uh, the girl had a copper colored one with, I think it had a white top. I'm not sure. Maybe a white or black top. Okay. Vinyl top. Yeah. And, uh, these, were, these cars were awesome. They were so cool. The big V8s, long, long front end. Of course, you know, high school kids, so they had, at the time, you gotta remember, like, cassette tapes were pretty new. Yeah. A cassette player with, like, the equalizer, the booster, and all that. You know? Oh, and, wow. So yeah. you could change the bass exactly. and exactly play that Billy Squire as loud as you want it to. <laughs> but, uh, that was, a, that was the era that I'm talking about like the late 70s but they had the early 70s versions of these and i thought those monte carlos were the
0: coolest car around yeah and i like your point about all the people who did weigh in on these uh irv Rubicki is one of the new players in the game at this time but we've got some returners here uh we got uh bill mitchell is still um still kind of the guy giving the green lights on these mm-hmm. then there's ed cole we've got bill porter charles stewart um And it's funny because when they look back in this in retrospect, when you have this whole stew of designers, or maybe a better comparison is when you have this many cooks in the kitchen, Mm -hmm. um, the origin of certain ideas gets kind of fuzzy. Yeah. So So you'll be talking to these people and they'll say... Well you know, I think those opera windows came from maybe maybe that was Irv. Yeah. I don't know. Yeah, and there's
4: not even like the uh, the great computer file system that we've got now that you could just trace back to see who who submitted the idea originally, right? So right. you could uh, you could say like I'm not exactly sure who came up with that, but uh
0: boy, that was a bad idea. Let's move on. Even though it was your own idea. Right. <laughs> exactly. And we <laughs> toured. uh that's a little close to home sometimes. Uh we've uh so we're at this point, John DeLorean and um some of his entourage will say are watching this uh, this black and silver model that's uh, in the styling studios, and DeLorean's guests go nuts and bananas. They love the second gen, and so uh, John DeLorean says, "Do it, go, green light. Don't change a thing." Mm-hmm. And it sold really well
4: again. Yeah. Uh, so the Monte Carlo is again. Proving itself a popular choice in the marketplace. It's, it's priced right. People really like these coupes. You know, it's got these uh, exaggerated lines. Like we said, that long, long front end, extremely short back deck. And this is going to be a, uh, a styling trait throughout the entire, uh, Monte Carlo history. Right. I mean, from beginning to end, you're going to find that long front end. You're going to find that, that solid roof line. You're going to find the two doors. You're going to find that very, very short Rear deck lid, yeah, and uh, and that's a st- those are styling cues that are going to follow it all the way through, and uh, and second gen was no uh, you know exception, and people loved it. They sold they sold extremely well again. They sold all the way through. Um, what was it about nineteen seventy eight? I think Ben. Yeah. When uh, when they decided that you know it's time to make another change, and this change was well, it's a pretty dramatic one. They downsized significantly the size of uh, the overall size of the vehicle in nineteen seventy eight. As they did with all other General Motors products at the time, because, you know, there was a, another fuel shortage crisis going on. It was like, you know, this, trying to cut back on some of these giant, um, you know, land yacht type vehicles yeah. that they have, because they had, they had a bunch of them still, even in the late 70s, they were still building really, really big cars. In I the mean, midst of
0: gas crisis. I mean, take
4: a look at, take a look at a photo of a second gen, uh, um, Monte Carlo, and just look how big that thing is and how heavy those are and the size engines that those would require. And then look at what they came out with in 1978 for the uh, for the third gen. Oh, um, uh,
0: right, right before we jump into that, just mm-hmm. for context, um, the um we need to point out the Thunderbird, which we mentioned in part one, our earlier podcast, uh, Thunderbird sales were doing very well. But they were shy of the Monte Carlo. They still weren't selling as much as the Monte Carlo. No kidding. I wouldn't have guessed that. I would have so thought it they would So eclipsed was, them. I thought they still would have been on top. But okay, so
4: Monte Carlo has now surpassed thunderbird in sales so you know they're doing exactly what they want remember this back and forth with uh with ford that we were talking about so it's like a reaction it's an action reaction really between ford and and chevrolet with what they do and it's all marketing ploys it's all Mm -hmm. design cues and characteristics
0: and and they're trying to one-up each other on these designs and uh so okay so we've set up our third generation here 13 inches shorter right yeah it's
4: quite a bit shorter i mean you're talking about you know shortening a car more than a foot um and it lost 700 pounds in this transaction so um you know it's losing a lot of weight in the Mm -hmm. um in the interim between second gen and third gen
0: oh about 318 kilograms
4: (laughs) for our friends outside of the u.s (laughs) very good ben very good thank you and uh it sold really well again at first now it's a much smaller design of course they're still being powered with these big v8 engines yes um so you know People are still loving that, you know, that it's, uh, it's still got all the power of the American car, American coupe that they wanted, uh, but it's it's definitely a much smaller package, and it's a more efficient package. Right. Um, but, I mean, again, big V8. Yeah, still got a big uh, V8, yeah. and
0: you would think that, you would think that because it's lighter and there's just less body for the engine to move, mm-hmm. that people would love it, but sales... Dropped in 1980. Uh, Dropped isn't even a fair word. They plummeted. Yeah, they, uh, they, they started to, well, they didn't, I'm not gonna say slowly creep
4: off, but, uh, they they did, they, they just dropped right off. It was, uh, it was kind of the end of an, an era, I guess. Um, yeah. And again, they said, well, man, this is not long after this, Ben. They decided that they needed to do another facelift on this thing. So in the mid-80s, uh, they came out with an SS model, which they hadn't had, again, since 1971. Mm-hmm. And uh, they also came out with, like, a semi-fastback aero coupe, you know, for NASCAR mm-hmm. uh, homologation, homologation
0: purposes. You know, so they had to build a certain number of these fastback right. um, aero coupes. And that's a... Uh, wh- Homologation is where you have to have a car that is technically in production for it to participate on the track. Mm -hmm. And so that's why you'll see these production cars at production runs of, you know, like 12.
4: Yeah, something low, low, low <laughs> like that, and oftentimes it'll be like two hundred. Yeah, something I know like I'm that. exaggerating. But, but, but in cases, Ben, there's some cases where maybe they will have like twelve or something like that, yeah. where they just need to compete in one series and it's a small series. In some of these bigger international series, they require several hundred, mm-hmm. where they hold a few back for uh, you know, for the for
0: the actual race cars. But it doesn't work. The strategy doesn't. No, work that it doesn't
4: well. work because you know this mid '80s facelift that we're talking about, even with the addition of the SS model and the fastback and all that, uh, the sales just continue to fade until um decided that, you know, in 1988, we're just going to have to give this up for a while.
3: Get emotional with me, Radhi Devlukia, in my new podcast, A Really Good Cry.
2: I'll give it to you straight. So, listen to the Stephen A Smith show podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcast.
0: Right, and there is no production of Monte Carlo's between um about The i'd say the end of 87 yeah
4: and you know what i do i do want to mention something before everybody gets you know upset with us we're going to go back and talk about nascar after all this so yeah nascar is huge throughout this whole time we'll get to it i promise but you know from 1988 to 1995 no monte carlo production at all and then in 1995 chevy kind of resurrected this old the old monte carlo name for um a front wheel drive coupe which was you know kind of a yeah new okay. idea for them.
0: Yeah, all right, so if I could take a second on this one. of course. Uh, the uh, thank you. the uh, the first four generations mm-hmm. rear wheel drive, closely related to the mm-hmm. Grand Prix. It's a, it's a, this v eight powerful. Big v eight. Yeah, thank you for pointing that out too. Uh fifth generation comes back and I can say this because I owned one. Um This thing is totally different car. Yeah, it's so got a front drive. Uh, it's on a Lumina body. People, a Lumina body. Yeah. I'm sorry, yeah. <laughs> and it's not the same engine. Inch- like the V8 is optional later on. Yeah, it's a it's a two door
4: Lumina is what it is really. And, yeah, that's uh, fair. I, I mean that's that's what it is. It's a two door Chevy Lumina. And, uh, it, again, I I don't know how it happened. Maybe it's just nostalgia here, but it sold actually pretty well. I mean, not great. Sales were around 70,000 a year, which sounds really good, right? I mean, they sell 70,000 cars a year. Yeah. Uh, but, you know, it just became a, uh, kind of like this, this niche type car. I mean, people didn't, didn't necessarily grab onto it and say that, you know, it's our favorite car ever and we're Mm -hmm. promoting this and, you know, they weren't attracting many new buyers. I guess now, they were getting people for nostalgia purposes. I believe. You know, saying uh-huh. I'd like to get that new Monte Carlo and see how it compares to the old Monte Carlo that I used to drive.
0: And I had never had an old Monte Carlo. You know, I I, I don't want to say I've missed the boat forever because I would like to go back and get one of the older ones mm-hmm. and and you know mod it up and and do some cool stuff with it. I have so many ideas, but the uh, the one I had from the fifth gen, nineteen ninety seven um it was a it was a good car, and the price was right for me too mm-hmm. um I've never been that guy who will get a supercar or at least I haven't been him yet but here's here's hope and I will tell you though I prefer the ninety seven um that i had to the one i have now no and kidding maybe it's nostalgia that's what i was going to ask you do you think it's nostalgia 90 well i don't know 97 to 2000, 2000 i'm sorry what did you say what year uh the 97 97 was one that i had originally nine. and now i have like uh 04 okay so well i could say it's nostalgia on something like that i mean it's pretty much <laughs> the same design right um you know what there i to me probably because i'm driving it there are some there are some differences hmm. like the the design. um the exterior, I, I, I gotta say, I prefer the, the fourth generation exterior and it's not, you know how it's like when it, you, your car is kind of like your kid or your pet or something, you know, you notice small stuff about it way more than anybody else. Of course, would. of course. So to me, they're very, very different animals. And, um, I've, I've asked myself, cause I sat down before we did this, and I was writing out some ideas about uh, trying to figure out which one would be my favorite of the bunch. Um, and the fifth generation, man, it's still, um, it's still better. And I think one of the reasons why is because I don't have to drive it every day and deal with some of the problems because the one I drive now, um, GM has had some problems with these things. So let's take stock here real quick for this show. We've got. NASCAR yet to talk about which we're both very excited about but then we also have something that I think we should get to first and Scott you know I ask you for a lot of advice yeah sometimes I mean you're good at advice thank you thank you I'm an idea guy you're a big picture guy. Yeah, that's right. It would be uh it would, we're very lucky that you don't give bad advice. Just
4: don't ask me to implement anything. Just uh, I can come up with the ideas.
0: Yeah, you're 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 a theory man.
3: Get emotional with me, Bradley Devlukia, in my new podcast, a really good cry.
2: on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcast.
0: Right now, which is the worst segue I've ever done. <laughs> Let's get back to the Monte Carlo. Yeah,
4: and you know what? We've talked about just the uh, kind of the way it just kinda of trailed off, I guess. You know, and the way that uh you know we talked about the ninety five um Monte Carlo redesign and how it just it, it sold really well to begin with, not great, you know, seventy thousand a year or something like that. Right. But then it just kinda of became this this niche product that eventually just trailed off
0: into nothing. It just it just slowly went away, really. Well I think for a lot I, I think it's important to note again that point about nostalgia, it's not an extraordinary car. Well, well, you know
4: the the thing is that it wasn't just Monte Carlo that went away during that time. You got to remember that in the uh, in the nineties, I guess the mid nineties, the mm-hmm. late nineties, um, a lot of the the big coupes. Kind of went away, you know. Like in the, in the cars that were the big even even Thunderbird, the Ford Thunderbird went away during that same time. So the yep. main competition has gone away. And when I say that it became a niche car, um, a lot of times what you'd see on the road, Ben, and you can back me up on this, probably. Sure. A lot of the cars that you would see on the road that were new Monte Carlos were these pace cars.
0: Oh yeah. And and they yeah. had this
4: whole line of pace cars that they came out with along the way. And before we mentioned NASCAR, which uh, which was you know really really prevalent in. Monte Carlo history. Uh, there was this whole series of production vehicles uh, that that Chevrolet came out with that were these pace cars, and they were all designed very similar. Now, they all had different colors, and they all had different uh, kind of a a different concept behind behind them, I suppose. And they were all pretty limited in production. Very limited. I mean, some of them, you know, like I think the most produced one was like, you know, just over 2000, uh, because they did it between 2000 and 2003. So there were four years where they produced these uh, pace cars with
0: different colors Mm -hmm. to signify what year it was and different interior tones and all that stuff yeah and you've probably you've probably seen these on the road they, especially if you're in the states they've got checkered flagging on the fenders and doors mm-hmm. uh, they've got the uh, taZ decals um, they've got a race inspired, do you feel my finger quotes when I'm saying this race inspired uh, rear spoiler? Yeah, supposed to look
4: like the NASCAR rear spoiler. And
0: supposed to. I yeah, guess. Yeah, I
4: guess a limited edition plaques on the trunk and you know the Monte Carlo script on the dash, which is replaced with the words pace car. Mm-hmm. Um, so you know a lot of limited edition type stuff, and, um, and of course it had they had these uh, well a decent sized V6 engine, a 3800 V6 engine. Mm-hmm. All of them had ground effects. You know these get ga- what they call Galaxy Silver ground effects. Yeah, um, stainless. Steel dual exhaust tips and 16-inch wheels, and you know, just unusual things that that made them, you know, part of the Pace Power group that, that Chevrolet released. And they all had a similar look, similar feel, but different uh, different treatment, I guess, maybe. Mm-hmm. And they all had different kind of um, I don't know if you want to say sponsorship, but I mean, some were meant to look like Dale Junior's car, and some were made to right. look like um, you know the. Uh, um, What's it, Jeff Gordon's car? Yeah. Um, so they had different color schemes that went along with this, and they all matched
0: kind of the, the NASCAR uh, push for that year. Right. Yeah. And the NASCAR feel, and mm-hmm. at, at the same time, um, around the same time, concurrently, uh, there was a there was. One, I guess let's call it one last cry from Monte Carlo in 06 where they, they thought, what if we put the V8 in there? So in 2006, I mean, I thought that was a good choice. I mean, they did this whole thing with like,
4: you know, a V8 engine, but I think a lot of people also kind of raised their eyebrows and said, well, what are you doing building a, a V8 powered front wheel drive car?
0: Right. Yeah. If you're going to have, uh, if you're going to have a V8, it's, it's probably going to be better for the rear wheel. It was a little bit of like a dollar short day, day late situation. Yeah, I
4: guess. But, I mean, it's a strong engine. It was a 5.3 liter LS4 V8. And, um, you know. Of course in the SS model. And, yeah, and the SS model. And of course, they're only doing, um, you know automatic transmissions at the time so that's another thing that people are saying like well you're not even going to give me uh, the option of a manual in this right i I just don't a lot of people there was a lot of disconnect i guess in that in that decision but i think it was kind of one of the last breaths of of the Mm -hmm. Monte carlo and they said well let's just throw another ss model out there and see how it sells
0: right and uh so despite these two moves despite the pace car uh marketing and despite the uh SS option to bring the V eight back. You know, I wonder if they had had the if they had had rear wheel drive, if that would have been enough. But you know what, Ben? Right. This is exactly where this comes in, and you got
4: to remember the car that replaced it, and and this is really important because it's another two door coupe that replaced it, and it's a good replacement, I think. They brought back, and I and I say replacement, and I've, I've troubled myself with this <laughs> over the way to say this because I'm, I'm saying replacement. They brought the Camaro back. As a replacement for the Monte Carlo,
0: mm-hmm.
4: what it did was it filled the coupe position for Chevrolet. It's yes. not necessarily that you know it replaced it because those two cars existed at the same time. So it's not like Camaro's brand new, of course, but Camaro did come back. Mm-hmm. Um, so they they've replaced the coupe position with the Camaro, and that's been very successful for them so far, and we see those everywhere, but it's exactly, it's exactly the position that Monte Carlo filled prior to that.
0: Right, and the last Monte Carlo rolled off the line on a Tuesday in June of 2007. Uh, you can still see, or I don't know if you can see it, maybe if you're, uh, Maybe if you're good with words and you can uh you can get in good with the GM folks, but it's at their Heritage Center, the the last Monte Carlo off the production line. Yeah. And uh the last the second to last was auctioned off uh at Mannheim's uh, auto auction in North Carolina. And the guy who won it is a guy named Fred Simon, who owns Simon Chevrolet. Uh shout out to Fred if you're listening. I guess we both like those cars. Um not going to say I'm jealous. I have a copy myself.
4: <laughs> I, w- I would be jealous, Ben, because that one was signed by everybody, I believe, at the Brickyard 400. Ah, that's uh, true. On that yeah. final weekend. Mm-hmm. So uh, that, was, that one's got kind of a, a lot of nostalgia to it, I suppose. And to, to own the last saleable car uh, from, a, from a product line, that's a big deal. That's why they auction off stuff like that. I mean, that's why yeah. it, it ends up bringing a lot of money for charities. Now, the last thing, Ben, that I want to cover here, and I think if uh, you got any more on, on mine, Carlo, that you want to say, I mean, maybe just uh, maybe a final word from you after this, but um, any more like stats or figures or anything you want to throw in there? Or are we good to move uh, on to NASCAR I, here? You
0: know, I I think that we should we sh- we would be remiss if we didn't go right to NASCAR. All right, so
4: NASCAR we've talked about it all along the way and and we've hinted that you know it was a big deal. Now this goes all the way back to the very beginning. So back all the time when we were talking about the Gen One stuff, the Gen Two stuff, yeah. from, uh, way back in the 1970s, early 70s. From 72 70 on, it, it was a solid success in NASCAR. I mean, Monte Carlo was among the winningest race cars. In the entire series for the whole time of NASCAR, really, I mean, it, yeah. it's it's really really prevalent. I mean, if you look through the results from the nineteen seventies nineteen eighties, you're going to see a lot of Monte Carlos in the top spot. It dominates. It, it uh, you know what? That's a good way to say it. It dominates because it, it eventually it brought repeated NASCAR Manufacturers Cup awards. Mm-hmm. Um, You know, all the way until its discontinuation through, uh, through 2007, really, uh, for Chevrolet. So, you know, it was a very, very successful car. They had the big, you know, the the big body cars from the 1973 to about 1977. Yep. In 1980, NASCAR moved to a smaller wheelbase car, um, which was, you know, any of the cars built by Detroit were a little smaller in 1980. Mm -hmm. Uh, so they moved to this like 110 inch wheelbase and they responded to that. And that's when they came out with that flat nose Monte Carlo car from the 1981-82. But the flat nose cars were not really doing all that well in the series. They weren't weren't quite uh, up to snuff like the other cars. So what they did was they revamped the front end. And with the SS that I mentioned in 1983, Mm -hmm. when they redesigned that, um, they brought the SS nose to NASCAR as well. And it became, again, it became dominant in the series. Mm -hmm. It was just a matter of changing that front nose on the car, on the production car, that allowed them to do it in NASCAR. That allowed them to come back into victory circle. So and
0: through the rest of that decade, right through yep. the rest of the eighties, through the rest
4: of the eighties, all the way until uh, you know it discontinued in eighty eight, mm-hmm. and then in nineteen ninety five they actually made a comeback again. And there was like this whole rear fender controversy you know, between allowing them to use different metal than the sheet metal they used on the production. Right,
0: car. was NASCAR bending the rules exactly. for the racing legend? And, and I
4: think they were in a little bit. And uh, but you know, of course, to get Monte Carlo back on the track, I think they were all excited about doing that. So they they bent them a little bit and. Then and then eventually things worked their way out and then finally um you know from 95 until about 2007 it was re- finally in 2007 i should say it was replaced by the impala and that's what chevrolet has been fronting ever since so and I, I man are they back on are they on camaro now i don't even know at this point what they're doing um impala may be the car but anyways mm. it's uh it's it's definitely not the monte carlo that's been around since uh or that ended around 2007 yeah. and um you know again you can't say enough about Monte Carlo and NASCAR.
0: I mean, they they're the two are hand in hand. They're forever tied together. Right. And uh let's also mention Dale Earnhardt's uh Wrangler sponsored, famous yellow and blue number three. I remember that car. Yeah, the Aero Deck prepared uh, by a guy, customized by a guy, Richard Childress. Um, this uh, went into Daytona 500. He won the Bush Clash with it. Uh, he won one of two 125 mile qualifying races. He took this car. Everywhere and anywhere. Yeah, that's right. And of course, who can I mean? Who can forget you know the
4: Intimidator, and uh, and, and his tie-in with Monte Carlo? It all plays out. I mean, th- this car, this Monte Carlo. I'll tell you, but when we first dug into this, I, I really didn't think I was going to find a whole lot of interest here i thought we were going to yeah. mostly be talking about your car your specific car and what what you kind oh, of no. the idiosyncrasies that go that are involved with that you know and and the strangeness of it you know like what you know how do you keep it running and and some of the odd tricks that you need to to keep it moving right i thought that's kind of like the, what this podcast is mostly going to be about but i didn't realize that monte carlo is so rich in history
0: yeah and uh thank goodness because we w- we should never put out a, a- Podcast with me just complaining about my car, man. <laughs> well, people I mean, can do that on their own. <laughs> I knew there was going to be more than that. I knew there
4: was going to be some, you know, little interesting stories, and we didn't even talk about movie cars or anything like that. But there's no. some, there's some Monte Carlo movie cars that we should mention. You know, Fast and Furious. They've got some mm-hmm. amazing car that uh, is kind of the thing of the stuff of legend, I guess, in this mm-hmm. one particular model. Um, but. Man, there, there's just so much involved with Monte Carlo that I had no idea. I mean, I, I've missed all that history. I knew I, I knew that I liked the second gens that my cousins owned. Yeah, you knew about NASCAR already. I, I knew about the one that you had. I didn't know that you had two, which was kind of an interesting fact that you brought up. But yeah, I'm sketchy. Um, <laughs> that's, that's good. I was happy to hear about that. But uh, man, there's there's uh, just a, there's even more to it than that. And you know, the stuff that we read, it seems like we just get to cover the tip
0: of the iceberg. Yeah, and we we fall into that often, you know, because. Uh, you know how it is, Scott. If we didn't have to keep our shows to a reasonable, listenable amount of time, uh then we would probably still be doing... Our, you know, one of our like Henry Ford episodes or something. Probably. We'd we'll still be
4: talking about, uh, Terry Henline and how he was, uh, working with the 69 Pontiac Grand Prix and how he's adapting yeah. that. And, I mean, there's- Which there's, is a hell
0: of a story. Yeah,
4: there is. There's just so much involved with this and all the people that are involved in it and have touched the Monte Carlo in some way. You know, they have some kind of influence mm-hmm. on this thing. I mean, going back to John DeLorean and Pete Estes and... Uh, Dave New- Halls. Yeah, and yeah. and all those guys. I mean, the, the interesting interesting
0: characters involved in this all the way, all the way through Bill Mitchell and everybody. Mm-hmm. And we hope that you have enjoyed our two-part look at the rise and fall of the Monte Carlo. Uh, we also uh, hope that you will drop us a line on Facebook or Twitter uh, at CarStuffHSW, and who knows, we might even feature your comments on the air but let us know what you'd like us to cover in an upcoming episode you can send us an email directly our address is car stuff at discovery.com
1: for more
3: on this and thousands of other topics visit howstuffworks.com let us know what you think send an email to podcast at howstuffworks.com